Did you ever read or have read to you at least some of the nine books in the Little House on the Prairie series by Laura Ingalls Wilder? Time Magazine ranks the Little House series as number 22 among the 100 best young adult books of all time. It was a TV series based on the books from 1974 to 1983, and there have been stage versions as well. In 2005, Disney started a miniseries about the Little House stories. I'm guessing that if most Americans know anything about the prairies and their history, it's from these books and their dramatizations. It's a major part of our pop culture. On today's Pop Agriculture podcast, we're going to talk about a cool new way that a little bit of that prairie legacy of the U.S. could be restored. Not for nostalgic purposes, but as a way to achieve some significant environmental benefits. When Europeans first came to the Americas, it was a different place than it is today. It wasn't as if it had been untouched by human hands. Native Americans altered the natural systems to some extent through their hunting practices. But in terms of vegetation, the region was still mostly dominated by the biomes that had been there for thousands of years. The part of the U.S. we now refer to as the Corn Belt was originally a vast grassland ecosystem that we call tall grass prairie. There weren't many trees or even shrubs, but the system was dominated by deep-rooted perennial grasses. There were also some legumes and sedges in the mix, along with flowering plants like clover, sunflower, daylily, and milkweed. This supported a diverse population of insects, birds, and rodents, in addition to herds of grazing mammals such as bison. Throughout the 19th century, a large proportion of that tall grass prairie was converted into farmland by settlers who were often called sodbusters. That term referred to the process through which the prairie was literally turned upside down with plows, a process that got more efficient after the 1837 invention of a polished steel moldboard plow by a certain blacksmith named John Deere. Deere built a thriving business selling these plows to homesteaders and other farmers, and those implements were vital to building the agricultural base that exists today. Company went on to be a leader in tractor technology and is to this day an important player in both the equipment and big data sectors for agriculture. There are still some remnants of the original prairie ecosystem, but they're fairly small. Now the soils that the early farmers tilled were deep and rich in organic matter because of the plants that had grown there for so long. But years of tillage had steadily reduced that soil quality and exposed the land to potential for erosion. Now, we might think of the U.S. Midwest as extremely flat, but for most of it, there's enough slope that in a severe rain event, something happens a lot in the spring there, lots of soil can wash away and end up in streams and rivers where that sediment is bad for the plant and invertebrate communities that live there. Also, the water and soil runoff carries lots of nutrients from crop fertilizers, and those nutrients can lead to excessive growth of algae. The Mississippi River drains a huge part of this area and it dumps into the Gulf of Mexico, where the nutrient-fed algal bloom has recently created as much as an 8,158 square mile dead zone in the ocean. 
Ever since the Dust Bowl phenomenon in the 1930s, farmers, with the help of the government's Soil Conservation Service, developed ways to limit the problems of soil erosion. Initially, it was about contour farming, making the plowed rows run perpendicular to the slope line. Starting in the 1960s, methods of farming with little or no mechanical disturbance of the soil have become one of the most important advances to address erosion and soil degradation issues. But as I described in an earlier podcast titled To Till or Not to Till, That is the Question, these advances are not trivial to implement. So a no-till system dramatically reduces soil erosion, but it doesn't prevent all the movement of nutrients to water, particularly if there are tile drains installed in the field. These are things designed to prevent damage from spring flooding events. Since 2007, there's a really new and cool concept for both erosion and nutrient loss control, and it's been tested and researched particularly in Iowa. The system is called prairie strips. Based on success in intensively monitored research plots, there's been an effort since 2014 to get this approach implemented in about 40 commercial farmers' fields to demonstrate the benefits of this new method with the goal of eventual widespread adoption. The concept is to quite strategically take 5 to 10% of the area in a given field and turn it back into tall grass prairie, taking it back to its roots, if you will. It involves reestablishing areas with the original plant composition of this region. Now, specifically, the band of the field closest to the waterway is replanted to that locally appropriate mix of perennial grasses and other native plant species. Then additional strips of this prairie plant community are put up intervals, moving up whatever slope exists in the field and running in contours characteristic of that land. It's an alternating pattern of crop and prairie, mostly crop, but also some of the native plants. Now, these strips might break up the monotony of Iowa's sea of corn and soybeans, but more importantly, they end up making a big difference when something like a big spring rain event occurs. In the research sites, there has been an 80 to 90% reduction in the amount of nitrogen and phosphorus fertilizer that travels into the adjoining waterway. Also, soil loss through erosion is virtually eliminated. This has been found to work with both no-till and tilled fields that are grown with standard practices, except for the strips. Now, it costs some money to buy the prairie strip seed mixtures, but such seeds are available because there are a number of companies that have sprung up to meet the need for similar seeds for other programs like the Conservation Reserve, CRP, and Pollinator Habitat programs. And there are government programs that can help offset these establishment costs through the U.S. Department of Agriculture's National Research Conservation Service, or NRCS, the successor to the Soil Conservation Service that I talked about that dealt with the Dust Bowl issue in the 30s. Now, the grower has to mow the strips for the first few years until the native species get well enough established to outcompete weeds. It takes a bit of work to modify the field this way, but it's doable. The way it works is that perennial grasses in the strips are super deep-rooted, as much as 12 to 15 feet, and they hang onto the soil tightly, and those roots are there to absorb any nutrients that might come leaching by in the subsurface water. These strips can also be paired with ways to deal with the tile drain water. 
such as gates on those systems to allow the farmer to decide when to let water out and when to keep the underground levels where maybe the crop can reach it with its roots. Another method is to have essentially a leaky pipe at the end of the drains that runs parallel to the nearest waterway and spreads out this excess moisture and nutrients in a saturation zone. That way those nutrients can get picked up by plants and not move into the ditch, stream, or river like it would have if it just flowed out at one point. Now these prairie strips create benefits beyond the erosion control and nutrient loss prevention. They increase the regional biodiversity in terms of pollinators, butterflies, songbirds, and other wildlife. And they don't seem to create a source of weed seeds for the crop part of the field because the native plants don't tend to be intrinsically weedy by nature. Once established, the strips also do a good job of excluding weeds from those strips and keeping them from invading that new plant community. Of the more than 40 commercial farmers who have tried this system, None have had regrets or taken out the strips because of any problems. The system has been compatible with tillage and non-tillage farming systems. Now, for this innovation to become mainstream, it will require maybe some government encouragement and cooperation with landowners in the common situation where the farmland is leased. For instance, some city-dwelling landowners who have heard about this might think it's a cool idea and would like to have their land tended that way. One thing they could do to help is to only charge the farmer rent for the percentage of the land that's planted to the crop, not the part in the prairie strips. Downstream food companies and retailers who are pursuing sustainability efforts could maybe pay a slight premium for the grain coming from these farms. Government programs under the Farm Bill could reward those farmers who do this, knowing that it would help with the overall issue of water quality and the dead zone in the Gulf. Prairie strips are actually a great example of how a farmer can provide ecosystem services based on the details of how they farm. What many people may not realize is that farmers are open to this kind of concept because none of them like to lose their soil to erosion, nor do they want to be responsible for a water pollution problem. They may have to give up a certain percent of their crop yield potential, but thanks to precision agriculture, this can be minimized. And after a few years of prairie strip establishment, the farmers are not spending anything to tend the land that's in the prairie strips. And it helps that there are experts associated with the universities to help with the design of the strips because that needs to be customized for every different field setting. This idea is now being explored in other core Corn Belt states and areas to the west with other kinds of prairie histories. There's currently a shortage of government funds to help with this expansion, but hopefully the success of the existing programs will inspire the U.S. government to support more of these efforts. Now, we'll certainly never go back to the vast area of tall grass prairie that once existed. The agriculture that now fills that space is far too important to the global food supply. But many of the benefits of the prairie ecosystem can be reestablished in these strategically placed prairie strips. This is something good for the environment and for a wide range of organisms that can live in harmony with the world's most productive farming region. Exactly how it will work to spread this new practice isn't clear today, but one of the most important things we can do is spread the good word about it, something that hopefully happened in this podcast today.
You can follow me on Twitter at GrapeDoc, at G-R-A-P-E-D-O-C, and visit my blog at www.popagriculture.com.